Heads up, listeners, this episode contains discussion of suicide, anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues, so please be advised. Hi, I'm Mia Dunlop, founder of Teen Brain Trust and one of the hosts of Hope Punk Parenting Podcasts. This is a short-form podcast for anyone raising a teenager. Teen Brain Trust brings together a community of mental health experts, neuroscientists, educators, and parents like me in short-form audio to demystify adolescents, help you build a better relationship with your teenager, and help raise the next generation of changemakers. This episode is the second in our four-part series on teen mental health, and we're talking about self-harm. We're joined by Teen Brain Trust board member and expert on teen anxiety and depression, Dr. Dana Dorfman, to weigh in on these issues and hopefully provide some clarity for all the worried parents out there like me. Dana has 25 years of clinical experience treating children, adolescents, parents, and adults, working with mental health agencies, parenting centers, schools, and more organizations. So let's dive into this important topic. As a parent, I often equate self-harm with suicidal behavior. I've heard you say that they're very different. Can you unpack that for me? And how should parents treat these issues differently? This is actually an important distinction, and both of these issues, both suicidality and self-harm or cutting uh, and other forms of self-harm, are scary for parents and anxiety-producing for parents and for teenagers. So that is something certainly that they share. Interestingly, and I think uh, what is commonly misunderstood is that self-harm is not always a suicide attempt. It is certainly something that is a behavior of concern. When teenagers cut or or engage in some kind of self-harm, it is not always with the intention of dying or dying by suicide. It is not automatically a suicide attempt. Self-harm and cutting most specifically can be an expression of or manifestation of teens' efforts to manage their emotions. So if self-harm isn't necessarily suicidal, what is it? Self-harm, and I'm talking about cutting specifically, is what we refer to in the field as a maladaptive way of self-regulating. Oftentimes, teenagers become flooded or consumed by their emotions, and they cannot figure out a way or they're unable to regulate them, to manage them, to tolerate them, and to organize them. As a result, they engage in this behavior as a way to discharge the feeling. It's like when you have pent up feelings and you need some kind of a release, the cutting offers some kind of a feeling of relief and release. It's a way for them to take something that feels disorganized and overwhelming, and it makes it refined and linear and directional. It's a little bit like when you splash cold water on your face, that that almost recalibrates your physiology. The same happens with this. It can also be when we have accumulative tension in our bodies 
that we need some kind of physical release. There is a similarity uh, to when you are about to sneeze and then the feeling that you get once you have sneezed. Oftentimes, teenagers describe a similar kind of feeling when they cut. They feel this cumulative tension in their bodies, which is the byproduct of a cumulative sort of emotion that is flooding them. And then through this uh, cutting behavior, they experience some kind of tension and release. Wow, you just totally um, gave me so much insight because I really had no idea that that's exactly what it was. I've always thought about it more like self-punishment. And it can be, it can be a form of self-punishment. I, it, it, it offers sort of different things for different people, but the way that we are understanding it is that it is a way to regulate or an attempt to regulate some kind of um, emotional overwhelm. Part of adolescence is that their limbic system is very um, sensitive and highly and easily activated. We can consider it sometimes a self-punishment. There is a way that it is a way of directing anger or aggression toward the self. There's also something about almost preserving a relationship with somebody with whom they are close. For example, a teenager that I've worked with for many years, when she had a fight with her mother, rather than yelling back at her mother, she oftentimes would uh, go to her room and cut. And it was sort of her way of releasing the anger or aggression that she felt toward her mother, but she was directing it toward herself in an effort to preserve that relationship, sort of like taking one for the team almost. And because teenage are in this entangled relationship with their parents. They're in the process of learning to separate from them, but there is still a, an, an intertwinement of, of sorts. It's a way of, of almost punishing or expressing aggression toward the internalized parent within them. I know that this sounds sort of psychobabbly and a little bit convoluted, but we do, when we're trying to disentangle or we're trying to understand the dynamics of this pretty confusing behavior, we have to understand sort of the emotional and relational dynamics. So Dana, what's going on for the child who's committing self-harm versus the child who's not? when they're both exposed to the same stimulus, like the screaming mother. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So we can't always predict who would be more prone to self-harm than another. However, a lot of times it's not only the cumulative effect of, or the tension that exists within the body when, when a teenager feels overwhelmed by or unable to regulate the emotions that they're experiencing. It also can be an expression of certain feelings with which they don't feel comfortable experiencing. A lot of times when we feel, or when a teenager feels enraged or angry or aggressive and doesn't feel comfortable with those, uh, with the expression of, or even finds it hard to tolerate those feelings, this becomes the way that it manifests. So in some way, we can say that a kid who is 
more likely to um, internalize their emotions or is less overtly expressive of them or who becomes flooded may be more prone to this kind of behavior. But we see all different kinds of self-destructive behavior. If this is not the only form of it. For example, after a long day at work and if I've had a very frustrating day, I must confess that I have been prone to maybe, you know, eating more Oreo cookies or a donut or two or three or four after um, after a difficult day. And in some way, there is there are similarities between the two rather than my um, kind of tolerating or working through those feelings. I'm actually sort of stuffing them down in a somewhat self-destructive way. The same goes for other kinds of coping mechanisms that people might use in excess. There is some similarity between these self-destructive behaviors. I don't want to say that they're precisely the same, but there are similarities. I think that there can be a disregard for one's physical body during these kinds of acts in the same way that in a moment of frustration, we may abuse our bodies or not care for ourselves in the way that we would in another state, like drinking too much or using other kinds of substances. There's sort of a disregard for what the implications are to our body because we're seeking some kind of release or relief. There is also sort of like what I had been describing before, this this accumulation of physiological tension as a result of the emotion and the release and relief that one feels as a result of engaging in the behavior like cutting can be similar to what people describe in other compulsive behaviors as well. You may have even heard of something called trichotillomania, where people pull their um, pull out hair, whether eyelashes or hair on their head. And there is a similar kind of tension that exists, even though the person ultimately does not want to remove their hair or doesn't want to be without hair or even experiences a lot of shame after the fact, the tension that exists beforehand and then the, the relief that they experience after they have done so is, um, is so overwhelming that that's sort of what prompts the, um, the compulsive behavior. So Dana, how can parents support a kid who is self-harming? There is a lot that parents can do to support their kids. A lot of these behaviors can be, um, which seems to be the theme, very frightening and scary for parents and maybe even difficult to understand. And so commonly parents will say, why are you doing this? I can guarantee you that if the teen were able to know why they were doing it, they would not be doing it. None of us or many of us don't know why we do certain things. So the more that parents can resist the urge to shame the child, because in fact, shaming is a game stopper. Once somebody experiences shame, they're unable to explore it further. So the more that parents can resist the urge to shame their child, the better off and the more constructive a conversation they're going to have. I would encourage parents to approach this from a place of concern and care 
if parents can see it as an expression of some underlying emotional pain, they're likely to approach it from that place of concern and care. I'm worried about you, and I imagine that this is something that you don't want to be doing either, and I see this as something that is reflective of or a manifestation of some kind of pain that you're in. And as a parent, I, I want to help you find ways to be able to manage the pain or understand what is causing it. And I'm talking about the emotional pain. A lot of times, too, parents are more focused on the behavior than they are on the underlying feeling. I'm not suggesting in any way that parents should condone any of these behaviors, especially when they are self-destructive. If a kid is abusing drugs or abusing their body, we absolutely want to address it. However, we must know that there is an underlying emotion and pain that is causing the behavior. And the more focused we, we become on the behavior itself, the more neglected the emotion is, which actually needs the attention. We wanna go to the source. And so if parents can even say, I see you doing this, and it makes me concerned that you are in some kind of pain, that is a very different approach than why are you doing this, which only makes somebody feel defensive, or you are going to get yourself in some kind of trouble for doing this. Kids are typically aware of the consequences of things, and kids typically feel some kind of shame about the behavior. In addition to uh, resisting the urge to shame the child, um, I think that there are other things that parents can do as well. One of those things is is creating an emotionally safe place to be able to have the conversation. If a child feels like it is safe to be able to express themselves, even the deepest, darkest, and most vulnerable feelings, the more likely they are to get to the source and to be able to get some of the help and support that they so desperately need. The other thing is to be able to even identify those feelings that um, a lot of times feelings are very, not a lot of times, most of the time feelings are amorphous. They're not necessarily translatable into language. However, the more able we are to articulate, express, and communicate what it is that goes on for us emotionally, once again, the better equipped we are to communicate and to be able to get the help that we need. And we can encourage that kind of discussion by using those words ourselves. We are all vulnerable. We all have vulnerable feelings. And so there are many opportunities in our daily lives to be able to express those feelings as well, to make it more commonplace and even part of our family culture that we talk about or we name those feelings like I'm worried, I'm scared, I feel sad, I feel hurt. Because when that becomes part of the family vernacular, it becomes easier and more acceptable to be able to talk about it in, in our homes and certainly in adolescents' homes. A lot of times these compulsive behaviors are, are the byproduct of or the result of not having another way to express them. And if we're referring to them as maladaptive, 
to be able to communicate them through words is an adaptive way to express feelings. It's such great advice and guidance because these topics are so overwhelming and anxiety producing. So to have you kind of guide us through starting these conversations is really, really helpful. Dana, I know us parents are always wondering, should we ask our kids if they think about self-harming or is that really taboo? Anytime there is a concerning adolescent behavior, whether it's in the media or in our immediate communities, that there is value to talking about it. But as you and I are talking about, that these are topics that we want to approach tenderly and compassionately. When parents are anxious about or feel uncomfortable about a topic, but they do want to address it, which I encourage you to do, it is always helpful to talk about it about a third party. There are endless opportunities on Netflix series, in the media, in the news, in our schools, where where we hear about these topics and asking our kids what their perceptions are about it. How come you think that person does that? What, what, what do you think prompted them to do that? What do you think that they're feeling? And then we can um, gradually transition into, and how about you? Even if we don't ask them directly, we can get a lot of insight or windows into our teens' inner lives and their perceptions of these issues through what they say about other people. So Dana, how do we as parents talk to our kids if their friends are self-harming? I would follow similar guidelines as to what I had said before. In a way, we know that teenagers are deeply connected to their friends and that their peer relationships are of critical importance to them, developmentally, emotionally, socially. Teenagers are not necessarily going to be so keen on outing their friends. However, they're also going to be concerned and caring about their friends. So the less shaming you can be about their friends and the less judgmental you can be, the better. Because I think that that creates an, a safe space for kids to be able to more openly communicate. So I would encourage parents to talk to their teens from that similar kind of place that they about their friends that I would encourage them to talk to their teens about themselves to even say, I'm worried about them, or I'm concerned about them, or I wonder if you're concerned about them, because they must be in some kind of emotional pain. So the more that you can create, we say a safe space, but an emotionally safe space for kids to express that, the, the more likely we are to keep the lines of communication with our teenagers open kind of really opened my eyes here to the big difference between self-harm and suicide. Even though there's a big difference, it sounds like what we as parents can do to help our kids deal with them is really the same. For parents out there listening, I know I always like to take away concrete things to do. So we're going to dedicate a whole episode coming up to tools and tactics we can implement to help have these conversations and provide that safe space that Dana just spoke about. 
Coming up next in our four-part mental health series, Dana and I will do a deep dive into the rise in teen anxiety and depression, what's driving it, and how we can help. By the way, in the show notes, we link to the resources we cited and a video series Dana created to help parents start the conversation about suicide with their kids. I hope you'll check them out and check back in for episode three. 